Hi guys, welcome to the Accounting Tech Tar Pit, presented by Early Adopters Hub, the accelerator for accounting tech. I'm your host, Jack Teal, and this is a podcast for accounting tech startup founders focused on no BS, candid conversations about the challenges and benefits of building a startup in the accounting industry. Welcome everyone. Thrilled to be here today with another early stage startup founder. He spent a few years working in management consulting, following that up with multiple roles in venture capital and private equity-backed companies, helping them to scale and grow. Most recently, he led the sales effort of fintech startup Hasty before founding his last business, DataWork, a data science and data, analytic, data analytics marketplace. Now taking that experience, he is focused on connecting accountants and financial planners with his startup RQ. Awesome to have you here with us, Johnny Ridd. How are you? Yeah, very well. Thanks, Jack. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Very keen to learn a little bit more about your journey and, and some of the challenges that you faced on this. Uh, I, I, maybe a good starting point is, you know, where, where are you guys at in the journey? Just so our listeners kind of understand where RQ is at. What's your biggest milestone you've recently achieved and what's on the horizon? Yeah, that's a good question. So we, um, it's been quite a long journey for us in some respects. We've we spent the last couple of years working mainly with actually Johan and, and early Adopter Hub accountants to define exactly what problem are we trying to solve. And we're now at the latter stage of that now. So late last year, we put a product into beta. Um, we've got a few partnerships we're going to be announcing over the next couple of weeks, months, hopefully. And then we're going to start rolling our product out, putting it as many people's hands as possible. In fact, it's not as many people's hands as possible, putting on a, a set of few and then iterating and building around them. So we have a product, it's it's now rolling out. Uh, that, that's where we are. Cool, cool. And and I want to I wanna go into the, the beta and the testing aspect of, because I know it's challenging with the space that you're in. Um, one thing you mentioned to us in some of the pre-work that we did was, you know, around one of the biggest challenges you've had so far, one of the biggest mistakes you've made to this point was building too soon and too much without completely understanding the problem. I'd, I'd be interested if you can elaborate on that and maybe, I, you know, I know there's more to that. So if you can flesh that out for us. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, I think, so let, let me think about this. I think we, I think it's very hard not to fall into that trap, I have to say, because the temptation is always when you're building a new product, it, it comes always from an initial idea you have. And it's very easy to get very excited about the idea you have. And as much as people say, fall in love with the problem, not the solution, it's actually quite hard to do that and sit on your hands and make sure you don't, um, you know, you don't just go ahead and build. And it's also quite hard to figure out, even if you prototype something, and then you give it to people to know when the prototype is good enough in their eyes and objectively say, actually, okay, we've now got a product that we're going to start laying the groundwork and, and building around. Um, for us, there were a, a kind of few elements to this, I guess, that, that meant we built a little bit early. Um, one was just our earlier focus um, as a business was, and it's in our name, ratings, which we no longer use, was around building due diligence on financial advisors so that accountants, solicitors, other professionals could make informed decisions about who they should be referring their clients to. And we, uh, we over-invested on the due diligence bit. It's definitely a problem. Um, but the way that we were going about solving it, building a very detailed due diligence framework and everything else wasn't the biggest problem that people faced. So we spent a lot of time doing that. The, the other, in terms of a platform build that we spent a lot of time doing is focusing on the relationship between 
accountants and IFAs or financial planners and creating the mechanism for them to refer clients just to IFAs, which in retrospect looks a bit silly because when you spend more time with accountants and IFAs, you realize, first of all, they refer both ways. So it's like platform needs to refer both ways. And then you also realize that in the accountants world, they collaborate with loads of different professionals. It's not just financial planners. So you also need to build um, uh, an ecosystem that can bring lots of different professionals in and help them facilitate interactions with one another. So that sounds like quite a simple difference. But actually, when you're architecting a system, um, a one-to-one in one direction is very different to one-to-many in both directions. So, um, yeah, and there are a few other examples as well. But, yeah, there's. I think it's hard for people to actually not, you know, build too early. Um, so, yeah, that, that's probably a good example for us of where where we ran into that problem. Any advice? If I mean, if you were going to be doing this again, you, you know it's hard. I appreciate that. I think even we, even though we don't have a startup, a software startup, we have a startup business and it's hard not to fall in love with what you're trying to do in terms of the, the end product. But yeah, do you have any advice for a new up-and-coming founder as to how to avoid that or how to remain focused? Yeah, I think... So I think it's really good to have a few number of very deep conversations with accountants or, or whoever you're early adopters, doesn't matter about accountants, but whoever it is, and, and that's what we did. But I think what we didn't do is the next step of like customer development, which is have a program to reach out to people you don't know, cold or, or however, by however means, and almost bring them into a sales process and get their feedback on the prototype that you built. So there's like an interim step between you've got a small number of really engaged people whose feedback you've got, um, but there's then like a second wave of people who you take that prototype to and get their feedback on it. Um, and so spend a little bit longer in that process of getting their feedback, um, and just like incrementally widening the groups of people. I think we, we relied a little bit too much on just that early stage. Um, and the way we got feedback from them was perhaps wasn't quicker velocity enough. Like, you know, you've got to build something, get someone's feedback really quickly and then come back and do it again, partly because the momentum on their side and they have like a coherent train of thought, but also, um, I think you'll get a number of a larger number of people feedback feeding back on the same bit and you'll get better quality of feedback if you if you speed up the loop between build feedback iterate those are the two bits i'd say yeah so that's obviously quite relevant to the stage you're at now so i might actually skip forward to that part of the conversation and talk a little bit more about the fact you know you're in beta or you're doing some testing at the moment is is that right yes yeah yeah we are yeah yeah, so how are you doing that? Because I think as early stage startups, if anyone's listening, number one, it's hard enough to find a few people who will find the time to do it. But number two, in your case, you, you're trying to connect multiple parties together. How do you even test that? How do you get those people engaged enough to to get that far down the line? Um, well, I mean, part of it is is to do with the fact that you know that you're actually solving a problem so that people will give you the time of day in the first place. So it's the obvious point, but you need to have, you need to be playing in some turf that people will actually give you the time and have some sort of message that's going to resonate with them for even for them to be able to willing to spend the time with you. Um, I think, but I think the second point is you don't tell them you're testing. You know, nobody wants to be tested on. Um, and it, we position it as beta, like we have a beta logo on our inside of our platform, but everything else, I mean, the platform works, we've tested it internally itself well. So it's not as if 
they I think it's important to avoid the impression that they're the first people using it because they're not we've got quite a few now um and so the way that you do it particularly in b2b I think you have to be a little bit careful in the way you position it to it because no one wants to be a guinea pig and also you know the platform we've built is you know they input clients information and it has a regulatory element to it so we've built part of our product with the institute chartered accountants and so there's a strong regulatory component to 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 the platform and again when you're doing something that has a regulatory read across you can't be in beta or testing necessarily like it makes feel people feel a little bit uneasy i think so um i suppose it don't position it necessarily as a test <laughs> number one um and and also like thoroughly test the damn thing yourself rather than throwing something up that's quite janky i, I think you can do that more in like a b2c context a product that doesn't isn't fully working you just ship it as quickly as you can we haven't done that we have taken a bit more time to make sure it works um like the basic stuff works and there aren't too many things that are broken um and then i think the other one which we've only recently implemented is gathering data obviously across the user journey so we use um, a service called posthog um which is really good uh, at plugging into your application and giving you a very clear view on who's using what um, at the feature level and it's entirely scalable so as you grow build rip out features and build new ones the data set you have scales with time so it's always going to be useful um, and so I think that's that's going to be incredibly useful for us as we continue to test um, I lost track of your question but I, I think that probably probably kind of answers it Johnny, actually, I've got a question for you. Uh, you. You've highlighted that difference between B2B and B2C, and, and I think that's something that you know we actually struggle quite a lot because there is always that impression that everything has to be exponentially fast from day zero with startups, and if you're not doing that, you're failing. So how, and quite often we feel like that that is more applicable to B2C and B2B is quite different. But from your perspective, what, why is that differentiation so fundamental? What do you mean, why is it so, I mean, why does the difference exist, you mean? Or why is, why is it an important one? Both. Why, why do you think that exists and why do you think it's so important? Well, you've got fewer numbers of people you can go after with B2B, particularly if you're playing within a, a, a given like vertical, like say accounting, and within that, certain people who are, say, rather influential or well-known and as a little bit more forward-thinking, it's not like you can continuously go back to them. So your pool of people is much smaller. And the risk of doing something that kind of turns them off and that their you know, negative word of mouth potentially, which is not that likely, but a possibility, is there in a way that it isn't necessary for B2C. So it's just there's fewer people and you've got to have a tighter alignment with that vertical. And you don't necessarily have that in a B2C context, I think. So how does that then impact the speed at which you can move? So obviously you mentioned earlier the need to be able to move quickly, gather feedback, iterate, um, you know, update the product, get more feedback. When you've got limited resources available to you to do the testing and you can't afford to ship bad product, how do you balance that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, something that, that you guys, the early adopters, have been very helpful with, which is spending longer with those people in a more, like the importance of having structured, honest conversations is even more important when you have fewer number of them. Um, and that's also the beauty of B2B. And, you know, the reason I love it is you can develop a relationship with the, the person that's going to be using your product or the business can be using your product. 
Um, and that almost means it's worth like a hundred, if they're truly representative and they're speaking to you honestly, they're like representative of, I don't know, a hundred B2C testers or users because the quality and engagement you get is so invaluable. Um, so I think you know, the, the way you approach the testing is probably quite a bit different in, in B2B as well. And in terms of the, the speed that you can turn around stuff, I don't know. I think it's <laughs> for any founder or who's not a, a, a technical person, who's not actually an engineer building the product, it always feels slow because <laughs> you like want it done yesterday. So there's, I am also mindful of, it does feel like we took a bit of time, but it's also partly the function of what we're building. It's also partly that we don't have unlimited resource, but it's also partly that I'm not, I'm not a developer and I'm impatient. So I think that might, that might be part of it. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're probably right. Um, and, and that's really interesting. So I might actually change tack now and, and move focus a little bit into the space that you're, or the type of product that you're building. Um, I described it earlier as a marketplace, happy for you to kind of, uh, provide me a little bit more context as to how you would describe it. Um, uh, but I think that's a unique proposition, uh, that we, we haven't had that as part of this series, anyone who's building a, a marketplace style product. So. How do you see that being unique? How do you actually describe it? And how do you, what are the unique challenges that come with that? Yeah, I, d- I don't like marketplace, particularly in B2C. Like, I think marketplaces are, are fine in like a B2C context, but I think oftentimes B2B, it doesn't really work. I, I think of it more in terms of a community, actually, like a vetted community, I think is more appropriate rather than a marketplace, which sounds very transactional, one-off, where you know, that's definitely not what we're about. We're about forging relationships based on trust and transparency and everything else. And Marketplace has conversations with eBay and Checker Trade, which well, it doesn't necessarily work. I think we're, um, we're very lucky insofar as um, we, we don't... So Marketplace is one component of what we do, um, or community is one component of what we do. You know, a lot of actually what we're doing today and will be for the foreseeable future is helping existing relationships work more smoothly. So if you're an accountant who refers clients to a financial planner, a solicitor, you have like a panel or a tribe of people that you work with and trust. And what we're saying is actually our solution can make that existing collaboration far smoother. Um, And we can help remove some of the regulatory hurdles. We make it easier to share client data, originate more shared opportunities, all that stuff. So you're actually not building one side, another side, convincing them to transact. You're just, you're giving pre-existing connections a better way of transacting. Um, the, but there is equally a fe- feature or facility within RQ that will enable you to go and find a new relationship. And that's probably the more traditional marketplace bit. So, um, and on that, yeah, that's that, that's damn hard. Um, and it's hard to scale. Um, and in all, in all honesty, we haven't really got to that yet. That that bit will will come a bit later. So we we can talk about that later when it's no doubt been a complete disaster. But um, at the moment, um, we've only done the early stages of that kind of matching, and it seems to work in at low numbers. But how we scale it is is a question for sure. Yeah, and and a big part of that community is obviously the accounting uh, accountants and the accounting side of it. So is, is this your first time working with the accounting industry, accounting profession, accountants? Um, do you have a background in this? How do you kind of, how did you end up here? No, th- this is first time. And um, uh, yeah, I, I, I love accountants, I have to say. And I'm not just saying that because some of them might listen to this. Uh, I think they're very um, straightforward, transparent people who, you know, 
they're really refreshing to work with actually as professionals i really like it they give you kind of honest feedback and there's no fluff or puff to it they just get on with it which is great um in terms of how i got into it i mean as as with most things in life kind of by chance i was actually um uh one of our uh, one of my investors is the one that initially put this on my radar as a as a potential opportunity for for planners and accountants to work together um not in its current guise but it, so it was very much somebody who came to me and said hey look at this this is an interesting set of problems and there's probably a solution out there um yeah with the other profession uh professions that are involved within this so financial planning and obviously i'm guessing legal and and a few others as well is there anything that makes accountants specifically unique within that broader group of professionals um well there's a few like on the who they are as people and then there's a few in the kind of context they operate in so their regulatory environment is very different um and there are quite specific rules about how they can collaborate with say fca regulated entities that's distinct from other professionals um so they have a bit more of a difficult time to navigate those regulations than other professionals do which is a slightly different challenge but oftentimes they're not aware of it which for us is a more interesting challenge because you're kind of you know, coming to them with something they hadn't necessarily appreciated what was it was an issue. So that that has its challenges for us. Um, and then I think as a it's contrasted with a solicitor, let's say the accountant will have an ongoing relationship with the client, even if they only see you know they speak to them say once a year to do company accounts or anything else, they still have a recurring relationship. Whereas others are probably more transactional. If you compare it with a solicitor or a mortgage broker, let's say the solicitor might do one bit of work and that's it. Um, or even if it's more involved, like supporting through a divorce or a transaction, it's one and done. And the mortgage broker even more so. Um, but so the, the accountant's relationship with the client is different. And also, I think people will still, if you ask them or surveyed 100 people who've got professional advisors, they'd still place the accountant probably near the top as the most trusted, the people they think of as someone I go to with wider business challenges and pick up the phone and and ask them about things more generally. So they they do also have that slightly kind of prized position, I'd say, with respect to the private client. Um, that's often the case with financial planners as well, actually. And I think financial planners would probably argue, hey, we're the trusted relationship here and we have an ongoing relationship, which is also true. So, yeah, I think there, there are a few few things that are particular to to the accountants in our in our world, for sure. Um, you know, as a whole, I, I quite like to work with founders that have experienced the pain point themselves before they launch their startup. And you're always one of my examples of actually, even if you don't experience the pain point, you can be a really good founder. Uh, so what, what do you think are kind of like the advantages and disadvantages of, of, of launching a startup that you have, the starting point is not necessarily a, per, a personal pain point? Yeah, I, I mean... Yeah, I'm acutely aware of this, and I come back to this a lot, and I actually bring it pro- bring it up proactively when I speak to sceptical rooms of accountants, solicitors, financial planners, and they look at me and think, "Well, you're not one of us." Um, and I think it's it, it's a it's a strength if you know it's a thing, if you like. So, um, in my case, uh, I'm it's you know I am a co-founder. Like there are lots of people on a part of the founding team um, who've got us to this point now. So. Um, Michael Smith, who's a very experienced financial planner, is a key part of the team. Um, we've got alongside from the beginning, we've, we've had a guy who was at the Institute Chartered Accounts for 20 odd years who brings the accountancy perspective. We had lots of input from the solicitor profession as well. So, 
yes, I am an outsider, but if you also surround yourself early on with people who do really understand the industries, then I think you can be quite a potent mix because outsider is a good thing, um, particularly in a world like financial planning. And, and I, there I see accounting as well, where there isn't, it doesn't seem to me lots of movement of those in that profession between other professions, like lots of accountants are accountants and, and they will always be accountants. Lots of financial planners are, most of them are financial planners the whole time. And so they have a really good understanding of their own market, um, their own clients, but they don't necessarily have a wider perspective on how similar problems have been solved elsewhere, the extent to which this problem is like that problem over there and maybe we can take from there. So I think being an outsider is a real strength, um, provided you're also humble and acknowledge that there's a load you don't know and you need to learn quick. Um, and you probably need to get people who have experienced the problem around you very quickly. And and within that that team, I suppose, have you had any have you had any challenges building that team out? I mean, obviously, from the outside looking in, a solo founder who can do both or do everything is a bit of a unicorn. Um, but it obviously makes things quite easy. Uh, so yeah, have you had any challenges or, or had any missteps with building that team up? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do, um, I grapple with it a lot. I mean, I'm just as an individual, I think I'm also finding my feet as a, as a, I founded other businesses before, but I think this is a different type of company that, um, that, you know, both the solution has to be very collaborative, uh, the product's very collaborative and the solution has to too. So when you're, but equally when you're building something, you do need someone who has a very strong conception of where we're heading sometimes, because otherwise you just, there's too much democracy and you get, bogged down in in debates about things that you know potentially don't matter like they don't resonate with the client and the or the customer so um so i think sometimes trying to tread that balance between you know that's a good idea um that's a less good idea and i i don't want to hurt your feelings in telling you i don't think it's that relevant especially when oftentimes my telling you it's not that relevant is based on nothing more than instinct on my part because i can't necessarily point to a client and say look they're not interested ergo we're not doing it I have to kind of push back, but push back on the basis of, you know, not having been in the problem. So yeah, I, I do, I do struggle with that. Well, that's really interesting. Uh, I'm curious, where, where, how do you balance the gut feel versus evidence based, especially in the early days where you need to be moving quickly, but you know, potentially those early decisions can be critical to building the foundation. Uh, I have no fucking idea is the honest answer. I, I think, I mean, let me think of an example. Um, so I think sometimes I, I, we didn't get it wrong. Like I think, as I said at the outset, I think the ratings thing that felt like something on my in my gut that that was needed and that people would want. But as we started building out a little more, we realized maybe not so. Like people do, but it's not like top of the list. So I got that wrong. Um, but then we, you know, we've quickly kind of pivoted to focus more heavily on other things. So. Um, yeah, I don't know, uh, I think is the honest truth. I think you have to, over time, you have to combine the two and look back and reflect and say, well, I we went for that on the basis of me thinking it was a good idea. And now I look back and see it wasn't. So this kind of data comes in later. Um, but I think I'm probably as a person more inclined to say, you know, if you think it's a good idea, just go for it. And um, then we discard it if it's not. So it's, I suppose it's like both, like, on the on the basis of like go and then if it's the data then tells you it doesn't work discard it um, rather than being wedded to I'm not I'm never really wedded to any ideas that I have at all um, so I think actually my risk is probably discarding them too early rather than seeing them all the way through 
Johnny, just to ask you on that, because I, I mean, I, I do know your journey a bit more closely than some other founders, but in regards to that, uh, I mean, that's something that's just very difficult as far as the human nature of the sunken cost that you've developed something for six months, you get attached to it, potentially a lot of money, time and resources. And I've seen you make that decision and just be like, not that doesn't solve the problem. You can go in the bin. Like how, how do you manage to kind of like drive your decision making in that way when so many founders, they, they fall for that trap of just falling in love with a solution or just a sunken cost and they just stick to what they want to do, even if all the feedback and, and data points otherwise. How, how do you manage to drive your decisions that way? it's partly because I don't have a choice. Like I, I don't, I really don't want to waste people's money. I really don't want to build something that people don't want. I really don't want to. It's a waste of everyone's time, energy and resource. And so if that is your real motivation, then, you know, just listen to to what is self-evidently not going to work um, and, and move on. Um, and, and it also linked to the earlier point, like I'm not an accountant, right? So, so I don't have this long list of preconceptions and, um, and I'm quite happy to ask questions where it might not get me the answer I want to hear. Um, and repeatedly ask them, and then I realize, well, there's a pattern here. Maybe they're not. And also oftentimes try and put people off in, in working with you and say, look, if, you, if this is not a problem for you, like, you know, let's not waste each other's time. Like, I, you know, I don't want to try and sell to you and convince you to be a client of ours. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Like, I've, I've told you what we're doing, why we're doing it. If it's interesting, resonates, let's let's work together and we can build something really cool. But if, if it doesn't, then... You know, I don't want to waste your time. I mean, I don't, I don't see there's any other way, really. Um, so it's kind of a difficult one for me to answer. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I do, I do think it is related to. You know, I don't have any strong conceptions of how this should work. I just know there's a problem out there and a nice solution to be had. And I'm also not. I would, you know, I, I think, I think other people might tell me differently, but I think I'm don't have too strong an ego and if if it's somebody else's idea and and everything else like let's let's take it and celebrate it i i you know i don't really have time for i think this is like well no one else does so who cares well i think i think from the conversations we've had i agree um but there is a there is a i'm not biased bias that that exists in the world and yeah and unfortunately a lot of people can't see or aren't aware enough to realize their own mistakes uh and that that may, maybe this is a good place to kind of end because the, the last question we ask everybody is you know is there under the theme of the tar pit is there a a tar pit idea or a strategy that you would want to avoid if you were doing this again next time uh it can be anything from just a small idea that you saw that someone said this is this worked really well and it sounded great and it just didn't pay off a bigger business strategy something product related has there been anything in the startup space on your journey that presented itself as an amazing idea that in reality you look back and think i'd never do that again mm. um it's i i just, not nothing comes to mind in in all honesty partly because there are loads of ideas floating around all the time and most of them are terrible um but i i, I not necessarily but I, I have actually recently gone through the experience of having worked for companies a few years back that are now being sold um and seeing them in the earlier stages um and seeing i don't think this is going to work and i think this is going to work um and i th i suppose my point is that sometimes there is a question of 
you can start out with what looks like a target idea, but if you have both, you listen and you have persistence and you have that combination in right areas, then you can change the target idea into a decent idea. Um, so uh, I think it's about starting and, and approaching everything in the right objective way and being persistent when it needs to be, which is kind of saying everything and nothing in some respects. But um, so, no, I haven't. I can't think of a necessarily a, a, a good example. If I had more time, I probably could. But um, I'd say the converse that oftentimes things might present them as a target idea, but actually with enough tweaking and persistence, you can turn them into a really good idea because there's oftentimes a nub of truth to these things that people say, oh, it's a target. But actually at base, there is probably a problem in need of solving that people would pay you money for solve. No, it's an interesting take, and I think I think you're right. Um, and I think I think what a lot of people get wrong is is going deep enough to actually uncover what the what the root problem is that they're trying to solve when it comes to tar pit ideas. They often take a surface level problem, try and solve it with technology, and find that it doesn't work. But because it's not a technology problem, it's a people problem, or there's another so. So it's it's an interesting take, and I I, I think I kind of like it because at the end of the day, problems a problem needs to be solved. Uh, but I think maybe you know there's certain situations where it's going to require a lot more effort, and there's going to be certain situations where tech might not be the answer as well. So I think just on that real quick, I think there are two antidotes to knowing whether you've got one of those problems, those target problems. The first is are people actively trying to solve it today elsewhere? So your your example at the beginning of like. You know, wouldn't it be cool if there was a there was a product that brought mates to the pub quick and we knew where they were? It's like, yeah, it's a nice idea, but is anyone actively trying to solve that problem and either paying for it or doing it in a really painful way? And then the second question is, why now? Like, well, why do you think this this is a good product now? Because that sounds like it's always been a good idea. So, if you can figure those two out, I think it helps. Love it, and uh, it's been good talking, Johnny. We might we might wrap it up there, and obviously, all the best with our queue. We um we know you quite well and we've we've worked with you quite closely over the last i don't know few years so look forward to following the journey and thanks again for your time cool thanks jack thanks johan nice to speak to you both thank you once again for tuning in we hope you enjoyed the episode if you are a potential founder in your early stages of developing a product or elsewhere in the journey struggling to achieve product market fit we would love for you to reach out at www.earlyadoptershub.com. This has been another episode of the Accounting Tech Tar Pit presented by Early Adopters Hub, the accelerator for accounting tech.